But one of the things that I will really, I mean, I will die on this hill, which is that the church, the American church, has so very much let racism become a disease in how we view our society, how we view our brothers and sisters of color, um, how we view authority in the church. It is an assumption that someone who is white is going to be better educated and has more biblical authority. Uh, And that's a terrible indictment of our faith. I think that's a terrible indictment of how we have allowed our culture to flourish. And examples like this show me how that happened. I was taught red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Unique New York is another good one. Oh yeah, I've heard you say that one. All right. Hello and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about history, faith, ethics, and sexuality from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. My name is Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy, and I do research on justice, ethics, and arguments for God's existence. And I am Maggie Flamingo. I am a historian working on a study of the evangelical church as related to the doctrine of divorce and remarriage, which is what we're going to talk about today. So Joel, I want to chat a little bit about how my dissertation intersects somewhat with conversations that have been circulating recently in society about racial injustice. Well, that's exciting. And I just want to say too for our listeners, I mean, you, you know, Maggie does research on divorce and remarriage. And for some of you, you're thinking, wow, that sounds really daunting and um, maybe even like difficult. And I'm sure it has been for you, Maggie, but I just want to like, I just want to like champion your credentials here. Like Maggie is, I think, becoming one of the foremost scholars on this issue. And um, there are probably few people who know more about the history of divorce and remarriage, especially amongst evangelicals, the history of evangelicals and divorce and remarriage. Very few people know more about that than Maggie, uh, in particular as concerns the 20th century. Notice all those qualifications like 20th century, evangelicalism, and that's that's what a PhD will do to you. It takes you into a very specific line of research. Um, And so, Maggie, I've, I've really enjoyed learning about what you're learning about and hearing about these stories. And yeah, I can definitely see how a lot of these cases intersect with cont- you know, contemporary issues on justice. So I'm looking forward to learning about this. Yeah. So what I want to talk about today is one particular minister that I have come across. And first of all, let me say that in evangelical culture overall, there's usually three different approaches to divorce and remarriage, specifically remarriage, which is kind of the where the rubber hits the road, right? Whether or not you believe in divorce or not, it happens. Um, and whether that person is free to remarry, right? What does that mean? Is it okay? Does it mean they're in a, in a position of a continual adultery, right? Uh, and there's three major camps, right? Um, and the predominant camp in the 20th century is certainly that remarriage is allowable um, for two reasons, right? Uh, In case of uh, desertion, right? And adultery. Then you have kind of a more moderate camp that says, well, yes, but um, in those cases, perhaps it's only divorce that is allowed, not necessarily remarriage. And so they're a little bit more hesitant to allow remarriage. And it happens only in the case of the innocent party, 
right? So they're going to be um, much more hedgy, particularly uh, in the early 20th century as to whether or not anything beyond a very clean-cut uh, divorce based on adultery and then the innocent party, right? The person who didn't have an affair can then get remarried, right? That's kind of the middle camp. And then you have the much more conservative camp, which believes that, okay, divorce might happen, but you're never free to remarry anyone else because in the eyes of God, really, your covenant still remains. So any kind of relationship after that marriage would be adultery. And that's what gets really interesting in that theology plays a big role in how people react to that, right? So think of it this way. If you are someone who believes that you can lose your salvation, remarriage essentially would be a case of continual adultery that would then risk your salvation. So it's a big issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I think a lot of times we don't consider divorce and remarriage a, you know, quote unquote salvation issue. Um, but for some people, it absolutely was um, and is right continually today. And so the minister that I want to talk about today is one of those. Right. His testimony gets brought up in this camp of divorce um, is never allowable and will result in a case of continual adultery. This is one of the most powerful um, examples that is brought forth um, to present that argument. And I don't want to oversell this in the sense that that's not a major position in the evangelical world, right? This is definitely the minority view, but it is a consistent view that has existed in, say, the last hundred years. And it really does come down to what you believe the covenant is, right? If you believe the covenant is something that is unbreakable, it makes sense, right? If nothing can break this covenant, then yes, there might be times where you have to put away your partner, right? That's the the biblical passage to put away your spouse or wife. Um, And that, but that doesn't mean that you're free to remarry someone else is the argument. And there's some gymnastics that happen, certainly. Um, You have some scholars that argue that the phrase, particularly in Matthew 19.9, where it says, except be it for sexual immorality, that's actually referring to uh, a time period before marriage has happened, um, which, um, say, the the perfect example is um, Joseph and Mary, right? They weren't actually married when Mary became pregnant with Christ, right? But because they were engaged, it was like they were married. And Joseph would have actually needed to divorce her to end that engagement. Mm. So there are some biblical scholars who believe that that's actually what was being referred to there, um, that that tiny little window. And that's, again, this is a minority view. Um, This isn't widely held, um, but it certainly is one of the justifications for why that little clause is there in Matthew, right? It's talking about that that, um, engagement period. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so, I mean, I'm just trying to process something you said earlier, too. There's this concern about, you know, if, if the covenant isn't terminated upon divorce, then you're in effect, and you get remarried, then you're in effect engaged in continual adultery with another yeah. woman or another man. Mm-hmm. Right. And the concern there is that you, you know, that could put your, your salvation in jeopardy. Um, is there a tension there? Because if the marriage covenant can't be broken, then by parity of reasoning, couldn't someone say that the salvation covenant can't be broken? I mean, did, did, did people reflect on that potential puzzle? I don't, I've never really seen that one reflected on, no. Um, 
Yes. Which and yeah, and I do yeah, I do actually think that it is it is an important tension. I think that there's also just some yes. other passages that you can point to that you know, really put tension on this argument that the covenant can never be broken. For example, the woman at the well, Christ specifically says to the woman that she has had multiple husbands and the man that she is with is not her husband. Right. So what does that mean? If you can truly only have one husband, the rest would not have been her husband, even if they were her sexual partners, even if legally she had been tied to them. And so there are other passages that complicate this narrative um, that I think make it a difficult one. Um, And I also I mean, I personally don't believe you can lose your salvation. So this is a view for me that's that's kind of a difficult one uh, to handle. But it certainly is a view that uh, you can see why it would bring great trouble to the mind of someone who is considering remarriage. Um, And so I came across J.M. Humphrey for the first time, I mean, on the lovely internet, right? I was looking up um, the views, different views, and I, I like to see if I can find cases where certain testimonies are continually used, right? And J.M. Humphrey's testimony is one that has been, um, brought up. And it's particularly if you do look up um, the phrase like divorce, marriage, or you're looking for um, particularly the holiness tradition and their view of divorce, remarriage, you'll probably come across this testimony. And the reason is because it's very dramatic. Um, He had a series of very dramatic dreams that convinced him that his second marriage was, in fact, adultery. And so I first came across him, you know, it was a website, it was a very old website, so probably from like the 1990s um, that had cataloged uh, this little excerpt. And so I did some digging, found in the archives some pamphlets by J.M. Humphrey. And at the turn of the century, so this is like early 20th century, um, so 1910s, 1920s, he had several books of sermons that were printed, but there wasn't a lot of other information available about him. And so I kept looking. I found a longer pamphlet um, that gave like sort of his fuller story, right, that he had printed um, and talked a little bit about his background and then fully outlined the different dreams that he had had. And it was in the back of one of these pamphlets um, that I got from a college that is associated with the holiness movement. They had it in their archive um, that there was an attached letter to the pamphlet. And this isn't unusual. Usually when pamphlets are reprinted, if someone's famous or semi-famous, you know, do an afterword and say, hey, this is something you should read, right? Just like books today. That's something that'll, um, you know, help the pamphlet sell. And so there was a letter by this woman who was a pretty big figure, um, in a sense, in the holiness movement. Her brother-in-law was a a key preacher, uh, E.E. Shellhammer. Um, And she wrote a letter to the editor of this pamphlet talking about Brother Humphrey. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. It gives a little bit more of his background. And as I was reading it, um, she said, you know, he was such a great friend um, to us, very dear and close. And then she said, black, yes, but he could also preach. And I was like, wait, what? And I I just like reread that paragraph because I'd been looking for information about this man for quite a while. And this is very much so the first time that I'd heard a reference to his race. And Mm. the way that she mentioned it, first of all, that was the exact phrasing, black, yes, but. Right? So there's this like, Mm. first of all, you're already as a modern human being, like, completely alerted to the attitude of this woman, um, that she's close friends with him, but there's also this qualification, uh, that rises. And so 
for me, I think that this case highlights some of the issues that are really in, what's the word I want to use? They're very problematic in my field, right? That Mm -hmm. we have a tendency to categorize certain fields of history. And if something doesn't fit within like your little bubble, it doesn't get into the history. And I think that a lot of times, and it's understandable why this happened, but the history of evangelicalism is in many ways very much so the history of white evangelicalism. And Mm. it's hard not to just write separate histories um, for different racial groups, right? So there are books that are written about Asian American evangelicals or black evangelicals and the black church. That's actually a really rich um, scholarship. But if you're studying just evangelicalism, um, you're only going to tangentially get involved with these other groups. And I think that we are now starting to see some new scholarship that really questions that and starts to to push back on it. And so um, Yeah. So that like coming across this pamphlet, coming across this letter in particular, I think does two things. It helps to highlight the attitudes of the white church towards um, those who they truly did believe were their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet somehow still wanted to push them aside because of the color of their skin. And it also, for me, helps me reflect on some of the difficulties of writing about evangelicalism and not wanting to just write about the white church, but also be limited in the fact that that is the dominant history that exists, right? That was recorded. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about point one. So you're saying that this case highlights the attitudes of the white church, yeah. that they regarded black Americans as part of the church for sure, but still kind of marginalize those voices. And I think it makes me wonder in this, in like the debate about divorce and remarriage amongst evangelicals in the 20th century, has your research found that there are other um, black theologians or black voices that get brought into the discussion? Um, I mean, how, how rare is this case that someone like J.M. Humphrey gets brought in as a black theologian, a black pastor to talk about um, divorce in a way that has like authority, right? Like, I mean, I take it that the reason he gets brought up in these pamphlets and gets talked about in this history is that his his dreams and his preaching on this like had an impact. Um, is this rare for, for black voices and black theologians to have that sort of impact on the debate about divorce and remarriage? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another strong example of it. Um, And I think part of it has to do with when um, Black uh, evangelicals or Black Christians are brought up in the debate, it's usually as an example of family disintegration, right? Uh Um, Which is a really common thing in, I think, just discussions of racial injustice and family, um, that oftentimes the marriage rates, um, the rates of... um, children born out of wedlock. Those are are issues of deep concern for evangelicals throughout the 20th century. Um, And that's something that they can often point to uh, the community um, or the black community as having lower rates of marriage, higher rates of children out of wedlock. And so for that way, it's kind of a way to like say, okay, they're the problem. We don't have to look anywhere there for a solution. I also just think it's much more so the fact that there just have not been um, black preachers who have been authoritative. Right. It's not that these black pastors and black theologians didn't have, it's not that they didn't have authority in the sense that they didn't have theological authority. They certainly had that. But the idea is that they weren't given a platform mm-hmm. within yeah. the wider like evangelical culture to have a sort of an influential voice. Right. For 
whatever reason, whether it's that they were pushed aside or whether their voices were only meant for their churches, you don't really hear the voice of Black ministers much in the debate over divorce or remarriage. And I, I mean, that does change once you get to the later 20th century. Um, but I, you know, I stopped my research in the 1980s. So that's part of that as well. Okay, that's interesting. So then what did Humphrey say? And what were the what was the content of his dreams that had such a big impact on uh, the church? Yeah. So one of the things that I think just needs to be said is he's an excellent storyteller, right? And he clearly was a very powerful preacher. Um, One of the things that uh, is written about him is in all caps, right? Uh, This letter uh, that was written about Humphrey was like, he's the best preacher I ever heard, right? Uh, So, and his collections of sermons as well, like it's, it's not uncommon to have sermons printed, um, but it is I'd say probably less common for it to be an African-American minister whose sermons are printed um, and published and and sent out. So he truly did earn a lot of respect in the holiness community for the way that he preached and what he preached about. And his testimony on divorce remarriage is that he was married very young um, and that he and his wife became um, Christians, they were converted and sanctified. That's the way he phrased it. But very soon after um, their marriage, she decided to leave that faith, right? And she, um, in his words, led a life of uncleanliness, right? And because he then feels justified in divorcing her, we can assume that that's in a sexual, in, sexually immoral way. So he decides to put her away. But he personally felt that Um, And I don't mean institutionalized. I think he just meant he divorced her. Uh, So he's using that biblical phrase, put her away. And he personally felt very convicted that he should never marry again. Right. That 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 was like, okay, that's it. I was married. It didn't work out. But then other holy devout men. And this is something that was really a sticking point for him, came to him and said, well, what about Matthew 19, 9, right? Where that that exception clause where it says, except for sexual immorality, like that's the case. So if you got remarried, it wouldn't be adultery. And so he thinks about it, he processes it, and he even confesses to his church. And this is a big part of the holiness movement. You confess every sin as a way of becoming more holy. He confesses that he had a wrong interpretation of um, divorce, remarriage, and he gets remarried. But very quickly, the next morning, he feels a heaviness. He says that he feels smitten by the spirit and this heaviness just won't go away. And so he's convinced that it has something to do with what he phrases his divorce marriage, right? Which we would just call a second marriage. And he enters into a period of almost two years of prayer and fasting where he, after a few months, quickly tells his wife like they should live separately um, as they process, you know, what's going on with him spiritually. And not a whole lot is said about his second wife's experience, except that even after he had several of these dreams, she still wasn't convinced. Uh, So we, we do get a little bit of a record of her not wanting to um, follow uh, this train of thought, but that's really all we hear. We don't know her name. I certainly haven't been able to find it. Maybe someone um, will at some point, but I have not been able to find that out. So he enters into periods of periodic prayer and fasting, separates um, from his wife, not 
in a huge way, right? They're still living together. They're just sleeping apart. Um, and he says that when he prays over it and fasts over it, he feels this clear-headedness again, right? He feels okay with God. And that's really important because in the holiness movement, again, he truly does believe like if you're not living right with God, you are on the path to hell. So that this is an extremely important thing for him, right? That he does feel this clarity. And his first dream that he has is one where a minister who had no idea that he had remarried comes to him and talks to him about holiness, right? Uh, simply that, you know, to cleanse ourselves from all unfaithfulness and things like that. And so he's just like, okay, why would this minister, you know, in my dream come to me and give me these verses? So it vaguely seemed to be about his marriage, but he wasn't sure. His second dream, um, which was months later, ha uh, there was a like an otherworldly spirit, right? Um, which I think is his description of a demon in that it can fly and it's, it perches itself on a building and starts screaming, um, like these awful things at him. And it says it hit his heart like an arrow, right? That's how he phrases it. And this thing kept screaming that there was someone in the community that had rejected the God-given light. And if they didn't stop, this is a quote, God is going to send them to hell forever. So, you know, you wake up from that and that's concerning. Um, so he tells his wife and she's still not convinced, right? But they continue to, to live clean and separate uh, in that sense. And then after this, his dreams get um, even more dramatic. And one he interprets, and he's very clear as he talks about these dreams that like not all dreams are God-given, but that in his, in his kind of talking about it, he says, you'll know if it's really a dream from God. Mm. So um, he's, he's not saying that all dreams are prophetic, but he has this series of dreams that he certainly does consider. So in, in this one, it's simply that, um, he saw two boats at, in a, like a very tumultuous sea, right. In a storm. And there was this very large boat, um, and he was on this large boat, but then he got off the large boat onto this tiny little boat. And he took that as meaning that like the larger um, amount of scripture that talks about divorce or remarriage does not have an exception clause. And only Matthew 19.9 does. And so he viewed that little boat as Na Matthew 19.9, that he's sitting on this little skiff clinging to except be it for sexual immorality in the face of this big safe white boat. He's out on this tiny little skiff. And of course it becomes uncontrollable and it begins to sink. And he goes down to a watery grave again, ending in a pretty rough end there as far as his dream goes. Um, after that, he has another dream where he and his uh, second wife are walking down a path um, and they're being um, really chanted at by a group of, uh, he describes them as voluptuous men, which I think is very interesting in that I'm not used to men being described as voluptuous. Um, but they're, yeah, <laughs> sure. You can think that if you'd like, sir. Um, but all, they're all dressed in black and there's black swine um, and they're, they're grunting and making all of these hellish sounds and they're chanting to them that they're in hell at last. Right. And so clearly, like he and his second wife are walking to hell arm in arm. And oh so he wakes gosh. up from that absolutely convinced, OK, like this is this is fatal. Right. This is a problem. Um, and so he then prints this pamphlet 
and says, look, these dreams are so clear, right? There should be no doubt based on the evidence that was given to me by the spirit that divorce marriages will lead you to hell. He goes on in the pamphlet to talk about his scriptural arguments and then um, to talk about why he feels so compelled to tell people this. And really for him, again, it's because it's a salvation issue. And so this pamphlet, very dramatic, right? You don't get a lot of uh, dreams and uh, this kind of experiential knowledge, um, it's, which itself doesn't have a ton of authority in evangelical history, right? You do get some testimonies that are so powerful that people are able to use them to make arguments. But in general, evangelical theology revolves around scriptural arguments. What did Paul say? What did Christ say? Right? So this is one of the few cases where something um, very... Um, contemporary, right, happens. And that experience is considered evidence towards the debate over divorce and remarriage. And one of the things, and again, this is just me reflecting on it. There's nothing written down that says this exactly. Um, But I think one of the reasons why his race is not brought up in the kind of the repeated stories about this, right, E.E. Shellhammer, for example, um, takes his testimony and puts it in his pamphlet on divorce and remarriage. And he just says, you know, one brother had this dramatic um, event and he wanted to share it for his readers. And he never talks about his race. And again, I think that is that question of authority that you brought up, that somehow it was perceived clearly um, from the pamphlet that when his race is mentioned, his authority is diminished. Um, And I think that's beyond tragic, right? That this is part of our history. Uh, And I think that talking about it is important because I wonder also how those other, like other times that there's been omissions like this, that we don't bring them to light and discuss them. It's just permission for them to continue to happen. Yeah. And I I can imagine some people hearing what you're saying and being like, no, it's, it's the exact opposite. His race wasn't mentioned because people were you know, colorblind. It, it wasn't important to them. What mattered was the, the content of the person's character and their theology. And that just, it's unlikely because, I mean, we're talking about the early 20th century where racism is still quite rampant in the United States. There's segregation, there's um, all sorts of violations of civil rights and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're saying is it is tragic. Um, it's almost like saying, we want to use your experience and want to avail ourselves of your theological reflections, but leave who you are at like at the door and kind of at the margins. And um, there's something yeah, incredibly, incredibly unfortunate and wrong about doing that. And I, was- I think it, it even goes deeper than that. Um, so mm-hmm. in the, the letter um, that Sister Jolly, that was her name, wrote about J.M. Humphrey, she said something that was extraordinarily revealing in that she and her sister went to a revival and they told them, like, here's this great minister, right? Here's this great preacher. Let him preach. And she says that they put him um, in the most unimportant service, right? Not well attended at 11 a.m., right? Um, And this is her quote, and I'm going to use the phrasing of the day, right? Because it's a direct quote. It says, people saw the Negro and paid no attention to him just a Negro. 
And so that was their justification directly for putting him in that unwanted slot. But once he preached, right, and this goes to that like whole meritocracy thing, right? Once he preached, he became the best preacher. They put him in a better slot. But here's the reason that I complicate that narrative, that idea that, okay, if you're just good enough, you can rise up, right? She says that this was the most wonderful preaching. She really lavishes praise on him and his preaching after this um, and that he saved many people. And then she says, after that, colored people couldn't claim him. He was too much in demand by the free Methodist whites. So I think people should just sit with that, right? That even if that was true, that if someone was good enough that their color didn't matter, but that also meant that they would be completely separated from their own community because it was a segregated community. Yeah. Almost like we're going to the white, the white community saying, we're going to take you for ourselves. That's exactly what they say, right? He, like the colored people couldn't claim him after that. He was too much in demand by us. He's ours now. You can't have him. He's too good for you. Is the, the woman giving this testimony, is she, I mean, what's like, what's the nature of this testimony? Is she like, you've like making any judgments like, and this is awful, or is she just purely describing the situation? Um, I mean, what she, is her thinks, she thinks this is evidence for why people should read his pamphlet. He's so good. So the fact that he was no longer like a colored preacher, right, in her phrasing, that was like, I think, a whitewashing of this man. Like, yes, he might look a certain way, but in his core, he's one of us. So read his pamphlet, right? Listen to him. That's the message of this letter. Because she's not apologetic at all. Um, Again, remember at the very beginning of this, and she wrote this to be attached to the pamphlet. She meant this to be read widely. um, That, yeah, he's black, but, right? Just that phrase, you know? She has no problem with those qualifications. And again, we are talking about... um, This is written, um, there's no specific date on it, um, but it's after his death. So it's probably the late 20s, early 30s um, that it was written. Um, And of course, she's she's a creature of her time. I accept that. And and that's, I'm not saying that this is a complete indictment of her character, the fact that she was actually close friends with him. She even worked with him. Um, She was his employee for a while. Um, But that's the attitude, right? That they're great friends, but there's still this great divide. And she feels the need to explain to people why they should listen to him, why give him authority. Um, and it's because he's, you know, better than you think. Yeah. And I, I mean, another thing too, I, I think she reflects at the end of her letter, like how devastated she was when he passed away suddenly. Um, he died pretty young. And that she did do his life as, you know, that fragrant perfume, you know, an offering to God. And she truly did care for him. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why I think about this so often when I'm listening to conversations about racial justice. Because as you know, um, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical about the extremes um, Mm -hmm. of this debate. But one of the things that I will really, I mean, I will die on this hill, which is that the church, the American church has so very much let racism become a disease in how we view our society, 
how we view our brothers and sisters of color, um, how we view authority in the church. It is an assumption that someone who is white is going to be better educated and has more biblical authority. Um, and that's a terrible indictment of our faith. I think that's a terrible indictment of how we have allowed our culture to flourish. And examples like this show me how that happened. And I think that we need to be very aware of it because we can't root it out in our current situation unless we see the different ways that it has manifested itself in the past. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the case too is that you know, this woman, as you said, was friends with Humphrey. Mm -hmm. She admired Humphrey. And she may have been a rather devout woman. She may have cared about the cause of Christ. And whatever racism was latent within her, it's not like it was this radical, overt kind of racism where she like consciously entertained these beliefs about the superiority of whites. But you can see coming out in her thinking that there's a kind of need to vindicate Humphrey apart from his race. Like his theology is great, but but that just suggests that he's not quite like the people that he comes from. And that is that is just straight up racism. And mm -hmm. in this story, it's just like there's this strong disassociation. Like he's yeah, he's a black pastor, he's a black theologian, but he's not really black. Like, look, he's kind of he's kind of different. And there's just something incredibly racist about that. Um, and it and it's very hard to detect that. I mean, it flies under the radar. And I, I think your your point is well taken that we have to be so careful about how this might rise up in the church today. And I mean, we've talked about this before, but just the importance of in white spaces, in white evangelical churches, creating that space for, for white people to see that black pastors, that black theologians, that black thinkers have authority, that they have something to bring to the table. Um, and just creating like an image in the mind of the white church that it isn't just white people who can do theology. It isn't just white people who can make remarkable contributions to evangelism and missions and so on. The black church is doing that and has done that as well. And we need to normalize their contribution, normalize their authority, normalize their voice. And are we doing that? Mm -hmm. How are we doing that? And I don't, I don't know exactly always how to do that well, but I think cases like this, create a kind of urgency, like we have to be careful that we avoid, you know, the way that Humphrey was treated um, for our own good and for the good of, of the black community as well, um, for, the, for the good of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. Just think of, I mean, purely numerically, right? We know that this has happened. Think of all of the amazing voices that the Lord had blessed, like that we've just lost to history yeah. um, because we shut them out. And I think that's, it's just, it's very sad. And so when I see this happening and when I, you know, find that I, I can't find the deeper history of people because they've been whitewashed, I don't know what other phrase to use. Um, it just, yeah, it makes this historian very sad because I think there's just such a richer history that I could talk about, um, but no one even cared to write it down. We know from the letter uh, from Sister Jolly that she says he, when he put away his second wife, he printed this pamphlet with all, of, you know, and he would preach his sermon about divorce marriages. He really felt a conviction. And you can tell that as you read the, the longer pamphlet, he felt a conviction to truly 
tell not only those who are considering second marriages that they might be risking, you know, their salvation, but also he really lays it on thick to other ministers who are not careful enough, right? Those holy devout men that he felt led him astray. Like he felt, I mean, truly, as you read this, you're like, his intuition was that he should never get remarried, but he's convinced by other people that he should. And so he's really writing also to other ministers saying, you can't lead people astray like this. The, the cost is too dear, right? Um, and so that's who he preaches to and he writes uh, his pamphlet. And um, that's kind of how he continues. Um, he also, again, he did have other sermons and he preached on other things as well. He's in many ways um, of a kind of, if you think of that classic, like fire and brimstone kind of teacher, um, that's the tone of, of many of his other sermons in the sense that he really did truly believe that, right? Like if you didn't live a certain life, if you didn't um, follow the process of sanctification, you were um, at risk for a life of condemnation. And so that was the rest of his ministry. Um, and that's what the record shows. I've never, um, I have not yet I'm hope hopeful that maybe I'll find out more about him, but I have not yet found out more about him than that. Yeah, and I think too, I was thinking about how his dreams played such an important role in his own theological convictions mm -hmm. and even in like what he was willing to share with others. And, you know, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that this has like, this has like historical precedence in the sort of holiness movement, in the sort of, origins from the Wesleyan tradition as well. Like I'm thinking of like the Wesleyan quadrilateral, mm -hmm. which says that when we're doing theology and when we're thinking about Christian belief, we can, we can draw on four different sources. One of them being scripture, the second being church history or tradition, the third being reason, and then the fourth being experience. Mm -hmm. And if you're steeped in that sort of tradition, then it, it makes sense that you would appeal to your experience, which might include dreams that you take to be prophetic or divinely given, that you would draw on those dreams to form your convictions. Um, and that might be, that might come up more frequently or given more space within holiness or Wesleyan traditions than in others. Yeah, that's certainly true in the way that, um, ministers come coming from that tradition talk about it like they're very honest about that being one of their sources i think and i would argue uh that all evangelicals use experiential knowledge and their arguments over divorce and remarriage um, in the sense mm -hmm. that it becomes so much more personal over the 20th century because divorce becomes more rampant right more and more people are divorced and so we have more experiential knowledge of what happens to people when they're divorced why they're divorced um, and we see remarriages right and so you you have entering into the conversation throughout the 20th century more examples of godly remarriages and they're like well if so and so remarried and god blessed their ministry then clearly it can't be wrong and so you start to see that happening more and more in the 30s and 40s and certainly today. Um, and so although they're not like overtly talking about experiential authority, um, that's certainly becoming a major part of conversations. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that we were able to talk about them today. Mm -hmm.